E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Jean-Emmanuel Simon, a French wine journalist and also a wine importer into France, as well as a consultant in the New York market. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's very nice to see you. So you, like myself, grew up in the 1970s. You were born in 71. Absolutely. A good vintage, I think. <laughs> but your family wasn't so much into wine, at least your parents. Not at all. My, my parents had not much interest for wine. My father was barely drinking uh, one or two glasses of Bordeaux on Sunday for lunch, but uh, I guess, yeah, that's about it. So my interest for wine didn't come from my parents' side. And you grew up in France? I was born in Paris. My family was living in Paris, but part of my family is originated from the Alps, from uh, Savoie. This little beautiful town called Chamonix, which is just next to the Mont Blanc, the, the marvelous mountain scenery. And it was marvelous to be able to, to spend holidays there in summer and winter. It's a, it's a place I really love. What was your childhood like? Hmm, what was it like? We traveled quite a lot with my parents. Uh, uh, they took me to Africa. They took me to... Uh, we did a great trip when I was like eight or nine year old, but I vividly remember we visited all the national parks in the U.S., going to Wyoming, uh, Grand Canyon, uh, Yellowstone. Uh, uh, these are this this was incredible for me. Yeah, unusual for a French. Uh, yeah, 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 but we we we. My parents always have always loved hiking and visiting nature and. Uh, and uh, seeing some wild animals, so so I, I yeah, I, it's it's something that I really enjoy today. <laughs> what was the career of your parents? What did they do for profession? My mother was originally a journalist, and then she specialized in graphology. You know, studying the the the, the writing at that time, it was quite. Uh, uh, quite fashionable to to ask uh, graphologue graphologists to study written letters for uh, deciding whether the personality would fit for a specific job. Today, it's not much used anymore. But yes, I guess in the 80s and 90s, we're still pretty, uh, pretty common. 
I think I would be hesitant to show my mother my handwriting from school if I <laughs> if I had a mom like that. Sure, sure, sure. I, I I tried to ask her a few times about some friends writing or whatever, but she she never wanted to to give me any idea about that. And my dad was uh, was not really a banker, but he he was uh, he was one of the first in France during the the seventies and eighties to do some uh, merger and acquisitions. In those years, it wasn't something so common also. So, he, yeah, he started that for a little, very small boutique operation. And he, he made a good living, you know. We had, uh, we had this uh, little house near Paris and uh, this place in Normandy also where I spent a lot of time. So I've always been surrounded by, you know, gardens and uh, animals. And it, it, was a, it was a nice, uh, quiet uh, childhood, I would say. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I haven't spoken to a lot of people who grew up in France in the 80s. I've spoken to people who grew up in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. and uh, So the 80s, I mean, how did that read for you as a kid? Like, what was happening in your life? What was I thinking in my life? Well, as a teenager, I, I grew up listening to a lot of American music. <laughs> for instance, you know, all the... I never listened to rock music. So when I, when I started listening to music as a teenager... My favorites were the likes of uh, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Prince, uh, all these soul uh, disco uh, music. And uh, I must say, that's what I'm still listening to today. I'm, I'm completely old-fashioned. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a happy time, I guess. You know, the, the, during the 80s, uh, uh, there was no economical crisis. Uh, uh, Everything was booming. Uh, people would would go out when I was like six, sixteen or seventeen. I remember great parties uh, with friends, and I mean life was easy. Life was easy, I must say. Uh, and not that I feel so privileged because my family didn't make a lot of money, but life was comfortable. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and your grandparents, at least on one side, had owned a restaurant. He inherited a hotel from his father, and that hotel was located right in the center of Chamonix. So obviously a very touristic destination. My grandfather was the first during the 60s and 70s to travel to Japan, to travel to a lot of countries, to Brazil, to, to promote Chamonix, to, to try to attract foreigners and tourists, and to really, he, he was really involved in that. But he was... He was not a real businessman. He loved to spend too much money inviting friends, blah, blah, blah. And so he, he lost this hotel. And so he was forced to sell it, but he had kept a lot of furniture from the hotel, like even the, the, you know, the glassware, a lot of linen, clothes, lots of things. But he also had kept a few bottles from the cellar. And those wines have been perfectly kept in a cool climate mountain, and when I turned 18, I was, you know, looking around in this old house in, the, in Chabonix, and I found a little cache with all these dusty bottles. And I had absolutely no idea what it was. You know, I just saw some old, beautiful, beautiful labels. Because those labels from, from Burgundy, especially in the 50s, were, were absolutely marvelous. And it was very intriguing for me. It was, it was, you know, I wanted to, to, to try those wines. So I asked my grandfather, and he said, yes, you can, you can have it. There were like 30 or 40 bottles, no more. 
And he said, you know, I'm too old. Uh, I don't really like wine anymore. Or if I drink wine, I, I put water in it because I feel it's too strong for me. I'm, I'm an old man now. But so he gave those bottles to me. And uh, it was a real aesthetic shock for me. It was a revelation. Because someone all of a sudden who gets the chance to try some of the greatest wines. And I mean greatest wines by the likes of Mouton Rothschild 45, Clovougeot 59, all Dom Pérignon from the 50s and the 60s, perfectly kept. I mean, those wines were absolutely incredible. And for me, all of a sudden, I felt like there was a whole new world that I knew nothing about that was just right there in those bottles. And so from that day, I remember becoming super curious about wine, wanting to learn, wanting to read a lot about wine, trying to go to some tastings, trying to visit wine producer whenever I could, starting to buy some bottles, and um, it never ceased. <laughs> of course, what's, what fascinated me was also how old these wines were. There's something very emotional. Maybe, maybe you don't, you're not very objective when it comes to the, the taste of those bottles because there's so much history linked to it. You can't help but thinking of those, what happened in those years. Sometimes your parents were not even born. Or For me, it was, it, it was like a dream to have access to all this. It probably brought also the idea that way too often, wine is drunk too young. I like old wines. Of course, I prefer to drink a bottle younger than too old, but very often I see people thinking that, okay, this wine is at peak, it has reached maturity, it will no longer get better, it cannot improve. Sometimes, no, sometimes very old bottles can be absolutely stunning if well kept. And, uh, and for me, it was a revelation also. Being able to access and discover those old bottles was uh, something unique. Something else that's somewhat unusual in the world of French wine journalism is that you spent a significant amount of time in New York City and you met certain people who were also into more organic and natural farming at the time. Yeah, that was really, the, the, the for me, uh, an, an incredible period of time. I moved to New York in the beginning of 1998 because I had finished my studies, and I wanted to work in the wine business. Wine was a passion, was something growing strong for me, and, and I knew I wanted to work in the wine business. So I moved in two weeks, within two weeks, I moved to New York, said goodbye to my friends and families, and started working for a wine importer and distributor uh, based in New York, who provided the visa, the papers, and so I, start, I started as a salesman. I was uh, carrying bottles of wines in my bag and visiting some some restaurants and wine shops uh, in Manhattan. And uh, it lasted a little bit more than two years. And I've learned so much. I've learned so much because I also, I've, I've also been lucky to probably meet very important people uh, like Joe Dressner. Joe Dressner, uh, the Louis Dressner selection, he was... He was this Jewish guy from New York who started importing French wines because his wife was French, Denise Louis, and they had a house in Burgundy. And uh, I think he started at the end of the 80s. 
looking for small producers, but small producers working in a very specific way. He was against chemical yeasts. He wanted wines made with only natural yeasts, wines which were unfiltered, unchilled, no refrigeration work, you know, everything had to be natural. If it was organically or biodynamically farmed, it was better. And um, that was it. He was looking for these small artisan winemakers that were not so easy to find, actually, because there were a few. So he was focusing on the Loire Valley because that's, that was where most of these young, small growers were located in Bourgogne, in Chinon, in Muscadet. You would find some, some small, unknown producers producing very high-quality wines made according to a certain philosophy that he had built for himself and that he wanted to give to his customers and the, and the sommelier and the client who trusted him. And he was so enthusiastic and convincing. And he had an amazing sense of humor. I, I'm, I'm sure everyone who met him remembers, remembers this guy. He's, he, was, he was really, he was really uh, amazing. And I felt in love with those wines. I absolutely felt in love with those wines. In those years, he only had French wines. He started Italian wines uh, a few years after, but wines from Pierre and Catherine Breton in, uh, in Bourgogne and Chinon, wines from Jean-Paul Brun, Domaine des Terres d'Oreilles in Beaujolais, wines from Domaine de Roali in Macon, something completely unknown and forgotten today. But this Macon, it was Macon Viret and Macon Montblanc. I remember those wines just like it's yesterday. They were, uh, for me, they were absolutely amazing. Some of the greatest white wines I remember. And it was a simple Macon. Huh? I used to sell that in New York for, I don't know, maybe maybe 20 bucks, you know, in those years. And those wines were absolutely delicious. And the producers like André Hichet in Minervois, no, nobody knew but Minervois in those years. You know, Languedoc was something completely, uh, completely unknown. So testing those wines, selling those wines, learning how to, how to promote them, how to describe what made them so special was extremely satisfying for me because I discovered something I knew nothing about. Not the universe of the Grand Cru, of the prestige, of the, the tradition of great French wines, but something more artisanal, more local, true to its roots, something, wines made with, with their hearts, you know? When I used to meet the, those producers, because sometimes one of them would come to New York and I would spend a day or two touring with them, pouring the wines, uh, they were explaining their work. It was fascinating to have this sense of, okay, the, this guy puts his guts in, in, in his wine. That's him, you know? And, and I was proud of that. I was proud of it. And I guess I learned much more on French wines within two years in New York, thanks to Joe Dressner, that I did uh, for almost 10 years, testing and learning and reading about wine as a student. So it was, it, it, it was very important for me. I remember his distinction between wine and made wine, made being like a pejorative for him. I remember he said, you know, Dom Perignon's a very nice wine. But it's a very made wine. It's very crafted made, like the idea of making it to taste like a certain thing, as opposed to letting it taste the way it, it would taste. That was a real fundamental concept that really changed how I approached wine. 
Yes, absolutely. I remember he spoke about spoofuletted wines. You remember <laughs> that? Spoofuletted wines. For him, it was like goofy, it was like pff, full of air, but they, they, they lack substance, they lack identity, they lacked authenticity. And those, those wines could be perfectly well made from an analogical point of view. You know, no default. No, no. They, were, they were easy to drink, they were fine, but they had no soul. What Joe Dresner was looking for was, were wines with this extra something in which you could feel the character of the producer, where you could have a sense of place, a sense of terroir, because, yes, they were, they were made in the most simplistic and honest and authentic way. So at some point, what Joe's offering were meeting a new demand on the market where people wanted something different than, you know, the, the usual big uh, names and big ratings from Parker. So you arrived at the right moment. And what about you? You eventually returned to France. I guess I was a bit homesick, and uh, I would have to switch to a different company at some point, but that would have meant that I would probably make, had to make my, my life in the U.S., and, you know, my father was getting old. He was like, okay, you should come back, blah, blah, blah. So, and I was missing France, let's be honest. I was curious to come back to France and to use maybe the knowledge that I, that I had learned in New York to do something different in France. When we come back, we'll discuss John Emmanuel Simon's work as a wine critic covering the Cote de Nuit and Alsace. It always takes a few years between the time that the new quality is there, and the moment that consumers and even merchants and sommeliers realize it, there's always a gap. And I'm there writing on those wines to try to narrow this gap. That's after this. Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution Origine by DM combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. These days, most of your writing appears in La Revue de Vin de France, which is a respected wine magazine. And you kind of came in there when there was a 
critic shuffle. Some big names kind of left the publication and they were looking for some new critics and you were one of them. Yes, I started in uh, 2005, at first writing little articles, and then I got offered to cover wine region. So I started with Sud-West, Southwest of France. So stretching from Irulegui next to the ocean, all the way north to Cahors and uh, the Bergerac area, and going south to Gaillac and Jurançon. Uh, and it's, it's a fascinating area. And in those years, nobody was really interested because... People, you know, other journalists were all wanting to get access to top wines from Bordeaux or Burgundy or the world. But I found more interest in those lesser-known regions because that's where you would make real discoveries. Finding the new young guy who just who had just purchased five hectares and starting right from the scratch is on operation. And, and this is what I like about wine journalism is making discoveries finding tomorrow's superstar, if that's possible, if there's any superstar in the wine, but but trying to, you know, people who are discovering new terroir. It is still possible in France. It still happens. Last week, I was visiting the area of Chablis, and I drove 40 kilometers southwest of Chablis to a little region called Le Puiset, which is completely unknown. Huh? Puiset today is People are growing wheat and beetroot and, you know, there's, there's no wine anymore. But there used to be wine. Even 50 years ago, there were still a few vineyards scattered on the, on the slopes. And I met this young girl. She's like, I don't know, she's like 24, 25 years old. Her name is Raphael Guillot. Raphael Guillot, she started in 2019, first vintage. Made wine in 2020, 21, no wine. She got sick. She, she didn't buy anything. So she has planted three hectares. She's making a living today with three hectares of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay right in the middle of nothing. It's in Van Pays de Lyon. Technically, it's part of Burgundy, but no one knows about it. And it's marvelous to see such a hardworking, enthusiastic young girl making beautiful wines. Her wines are absolutely delicious. And when you see her operation and uh, where, where she's performing the winemaking, you say, Okay, I wouldn't want this. It's so tiny, she can hardly move. It's, it's, and it's touching. There's something very emotional for me about that, you know? Finding someone who's so talented, was, was so gifted, already producing such refined, delicious, pure, balanced wines. That, for me, is, uh, is what I want to do. Promoting those wines, telling people, okay, you cannot afford the, 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 the Burgundy from Côte de Beaune, Côte de Nuit. Try to find a few bottles of this, this girl. She's not in a well-known appellation. She has rediscovered some uh, old terroir. She has planted her, her vines. It will, it, will, it will improve in the future, but it's already so good. And it's cheap. For 18 euro, 20 euro, you can buy a wonderful bottle of Pinot Noir. I think that's, that's really important. It's interesting because you cover a range of regions today for La Revue de Vin de France, and actually they rotate regions, so you've already covered a few. But currently you cover regions like the Cote de Nuit, which, as you mentioned, the market's sort of on fire. Yeah, There's a lot of demand. And then you also cover areas like Alsace, where a lot of the wines seem to struggle to find a market today, whereas maybe two decades ago it might have been slightly easier seems like more difficult today. So I feel like you see a lot of difference, different 
kinds of operations, different kinds of market reception, different kinds of what's possible fiscally, you know, for of a producer. Course. Of course. When you talk to a lot of American critics, especially in France, that's not usually what happens. Usually they cover Bordeaux. They don't usually cover very diverse regions altogether. Yeah, yeah no, it's true. It's true. It's uh, putting things into perspective brings you a, a deeper understanding of what's going on. When you compare a region like Alsace and, and Burgundy today, it's two different worlds, two opposite worlds. Prices have skyrocketed for Burgundy, and Alsace is currently struggling to sell its wines. Nobody wants to buy Gewurztraminer or Pinot Gris anymore. They, they, they don't know what to do with the grapes. So they're actually replacing by other grapes, or they're grafting, but... There's no market anymore. And what I find terrible is that maybe in 15, 20 years, people will start rediscovering those wines. It's just right now, they are in a position where, okay, it, it, it doesn't match the type of food the people want to eat. It used to be perfect with a rich, creamy type of food that is not so fashionable today. So people tend to stay away. Those wines may have some residual sugar, which nobody wants in his wines today. So they are seen as completely uh, out-fashioned. For me, it's very sad. It's very sad because, of course, one can follow fashion, but fashion at some point uh, becomes uh, out-fashioned and something new will... So so why why not just being able to to benefit from this diversity? And to say, okay, during the same day or, or the same week, uh, I can drink some wine more classical, more modern, more uh, tasting like like uh, a sommelier want to promote wines to you, and having something more completely different, completely try a new cuisine, try a new type of wine. It's just sad that people, again, are so narrow-minded that cannot have this curiosity. Alsace offers a fascinating array of grape varieties, terroir, wonderful producers. The wines are not expensive. They age so well. For me, it's sad. I, I really feel if I can, as a critic, try to help them, promote them, giving the idea for many people to try again those wines because they are struggling and they're working very hard and there's never been as many young, organic, and biodynamic producers in Alsace as today. Alsace is the number one region in France when it comes to organic and biodynamic. Almost one-third of the total superficie of the vineyard is certified today, or will be in the next two years. So it, it shows that they are on the move. They are trying to, to rejuvenate, to, to give a new image to the wine. But the consumers all are always lacking behind it always takes a few years between the time that the new quality is there and the moment that consumers and even merchants and sommeliers realize it. There's always a gap. And I'm there writing on those wines to try to narrow this gap. Something you've mentioned to me before is that there's globally, in a lot of French wine regions, a style or a trend for leaner and drier and crisper, more tense white wines. And some of those grape varieties in Alsace tend as grape varieties to not follow that trend. Sure. Just the raw material doesn't tend to move in that lean fashion. 
Yeah, this is something I see with white wines today. There's a widespread trend for harvesting earlier, focusing on the acidity. People want this weather-like, sharp tension, acidity in the white wines. And a lot of people don't understand anymore what is a real taste of fully ripe grapes, either from Chardonnay or from other grapes. Again, it's something that makes me a little sad because I think you're losing, you're losing something. You, you, you lose the expression of terroir and you follow a trend. And again, today, if you, you go to Alsace, but also to, to Burgundy or Loire Valley or even in south of France, sometimes you will find this style of white wine and they all taste the same, whether it comes from Sauvignon or from Chardonnay or from any other white grapes. When you harvest green grapes, sometimes then after that you 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 adding sugar huh? and and you make wines that have no okay they 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 lack flesh that they 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 lack pleasure that just lean and acidic and they're refreshing. But the purpose of white wine is not to be refreshing. For me, a great white wine should match food, should evolve, should improve with age, should be able to age, should show you something else than just, if I want something refreshing, I drink orange juice, I drink water, I drink other things, even a beer, you know? White wine should not be refreshing. To, to me, white wines are, are today are drunk way too cold, way too young, and I don't like this trend. This is something that buzzes me. I, I want to promote old white wines. Just... Try to edge for even for five, six years, uh, a Sancerre or uh, some, some Chablis, you will be rewarded. It's getting better. You can start to see more complexity, more flavors. More. I think it's the, that's something that really makes me sad about white wines today. Look at the restaurants. Look at what you can find in any restaurant. You will never find a Premier Cru from Merceau or Puligny or, or, or Chablis older than three or four year old. Nowhere, impossible. I'm not even speaking about the Grand Cru because they're, they're, they're too expensive anyway, but I grew up with the idea that a, a premier Cru from Burgundy, white or red, should be drunk at 10 year old, not younger. Grand Cru, 15 year old. And that's what I'm trying to do in my cellar, aging. Okay, sometimes you miss the point, sometimes it's too old, sometimes, but, Take into consideration the terroir potential and what should be achieved with aging. Drinking white wines from Premier Cru and Grand Cru when they are one or two year old is insane. And I disagree with that. <laughs> and I would love more and more producers to be conscious of that and to sometimes even try to, to keep some stocks, to delay, to put that back on the market a few years after. Uh, that's what Freddy Munier is doing with his Musini. He stopped selling it for a few years, saying, I am tired uh, to see this wine being consumed way too young, way too early in restaurants. So I put, I put it aside, I store everything, and five, six years after, he started releasing it again. This is great. Burgundian people, they have, they have the money to do that. Maybe in Alsace it's different. In Alsace, they do it because they cannot sell it. So they still offer five, six vintages, <laughs> For sale, because they, they're having a hard time selling it. But in Burgundy, they should do it. They can afford. These are things I would like to see a bit more in the, in the wine world.
a point you've made to me before is that just like overripe tends towards the same flavor set underripe can tend towards the same flavor so you can have wines that taste the same across regions grape varieties winemakers because it's, they're underripe yes yes under uh, underripe w- white wines I- i'm talking about white because it's it's the, the widespread tendency i'm witnessing today it happens with red but but red red has more this idea of you know the bright fruit you, you it's it's very enjoyable, like a Beaujolais. You 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 want to drink it young sometimes. It's it's so perfect. But white wine, hundred percent of the white wines in the in in France today are are, are being considered as something on, only uh, meant to be enjoyed, chilled, young, and 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 that's it. And after that, you move to something more serious, which is red. No, great white wines should be something. Well considered, and harvesting too early grapes that are green, you lose the terroir expression. You you focus on the on the same style of vinification, and and those are wines that will, for me, that will lack the body, the depths, the structure to age. A white wine does not only age on the on its acidity. What also helps creating a balance and allowing a white wine to edge will also be his richness and his ripe, it's the ripeness of the polyphenol and the anthocyan, you know, it gives a little flesh, a little richness. Sometimes a hint of botrytis can be great. It used to be the case uh, before the phylloxera, all the great white burgundies were harvested slightly overripe with some residual sugar. And that was something that helped these wines to edge. If you can still drink great white wines, which are 80, 100 year old, uh, apart from the Jura style, but in, from Burgundy or from Chablis, it's because those wines were slightly sweet in those years. But those were the understanding of wines at that time. Today, people only focus on the acidity, and I think we tend to lose something because... Okay, acidity is nice, but it cannot guarantee a proper edging. In some given vintages, acidity will be fine, but in other, not so good. What I see with warm vintages, such as 2003 or uh, 2005, even it's going to be the same with 2015 and 2018 for sure, is that white wines from those vintages, warm, rich, they have less acidity, they edge extremely well. Today, they can be the freshest and the best wines. Whereas vintages with a lot of malic acid, like 2004, 2008 in Burgundy, they live dangerously and sometimes they start to oxidize. So for me, it's a proof. It's just my, my philosophy and my understanding, but it proves that white wines made with fully ripe grapes can make better wines, can make wines that will develop more slowly, that will need more time to open up and to and to show their complexity. But people should wait and people should be patient and rediscover the idea of aging white wines because white wines made from ripe grapes and you give it time to, to open up and to blossom in your cellar is something that is unique. 
you referenced wines from earlier in the 20th century, but even in the 1980s, certainly 1970s, 1980s, white burgundy, when you compare the same producer, 1980s wines to 2000s wines, white burgundy, there's usually a dramatic change. There is. Just one example off the top of my head would be like Francois Jobard to Antoine Jobard. Different generation, same seller. You try Francois's wines. They're more kind of like what you were describing in the 80s. And then now they're much more crisp. And they're both nice wines, but it's a dramatic change in in that case. But in in many cases, I think, in White Burgundy. It's a generation issue also. I know Antoine, he prefers to harvest uh, earlier than his dad. The wines still have this beautiful austerity that's always a bit restrained. Huh? They're not, uh, they've, they've never been showy or super expressive wine. They, they need time. Maybe it's a question of taste. But I can't help thinking that when a young wine producer who's super well educated, was been trained, was been traveling, you know, probably has performed winemaking in New Zealand as an internship, been to uh, California, whatever. He has broader views than his father had at the same age. I'm always a bit concerned to see that he, they are following the trends. They are f- just following the fashion. And because some customers, maybe important customers, sommelier that buy a lot of wine, an importer who has this kind of taste, but just to please sometimes, just to please their customers and their market and what they think the consumers are expecting, they will produce wines in a certain style. Very often when I do testing, again, I'm meeting French people. They say, okay, why can I find a good muscle? All the muscle I, I buy and I try in restaurants, they do not taste like the muscle I remember when I started drinking wine 20 years ago. This nutty character, this richness, the the little fatness in the middle, you know, something. Today, Merceau doesn't taste like Merceau used to do, you know, apart maybe from Cochdury or one or two producers who, who have not changed the style. But a lot of wines have evolved. And they have evolved because, of course, the style changes and the climate changes also. But... But it's sad to lose, to lose your roots in a sense, you know, just to just to follow the the, the trend. Again, today the trend is going in that direction, but it may change. Maybe maybe in a few years people will start uh, liking wines with a bit of more richness and less build on the acidity. Who knows? I think the dividing line that you're talking about, a lot of consumers, especially younger consumers, actually don't recognize it because they're not familiar with the wines that you're talking about from the 80s and before, like in terms of white burgundy. So when I talk to someone like yourself or Jasper Morris or, you know, say Russell Hone, this difference is really noticeable to them. This difference of Chardonnay used to be made bigger and it used to be more rich and now it's leaner and crisper. And and again, like it or not, that's beside the point. But when I talk to younger consumers, that rarely comes up. And I think it's because they don't actually have the benchmarks. A little bit, I think it's generational. If you're 40 or older, you're aware of this. And if you're younger, you may not be. I completely agree. I completely agree with that. Probably... 
In 30 or 40 years, it will be the same. People drinking wines in 40 years from now will probably not understand the, the style of the wines that we consider today as what's fashionable, what, what consumers like. So there's always... There's always some, yes, some some mistakes or interrogations towards what has been done in the past, and we we think we can always improve. We think we always what we can add as a new winemaker, new generation, new consumer. We think we can always improve something and do better than people did in the past. I don't necessarily think it's true. I think sometimes it's better to be to be consistent and to be true to your roots and to know exactly what's what you have in your hands, understanding your terroir, understanding how to react to global warming and climate conditions, rather than tr needing to 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 add something new just for the sake it's new, you know. So wine sometimes are not understood as they should be because of that. Because we're always looking for the new trends, the, the new... Look at the sommeliers. Sometimes they're, 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 they're always looking for something new and and they forgot something they liked uh, the year before. It's uh, it's a bit sad. It should be... It's, it's, it's something you built. It should be like a pyramid, you know? Your, your, your knowledge of, of wine always should always progress and should always... But one should not forget what you have loved a few years before, a few years ago. I think that's the flip side of it being a social beverage. It pushes you more to, to be on the trend because you want to tell other people about it. But, you know, something else that's kind of come up in, in these kind of conversations, for example, Jasper Morris touched on something similar in his interview. I, I read something from Jean-Marie Goufins kind of talking about this divide in white burgundy one of the things they tend to say is you're losing the grape variety when you make it very lean like this you're losing the taste of the grape variety and i think a lot of the verbiage about burgundy today is terroir 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 and so i think there's a certain audience that doesn't even care if you lose the grape variety yes absolutely and there's, a, there's also a lot of people who don't know much about terroir that tell you about this idea of terroir but have, have you you know, who has a real understanding of what uh, Meursou Genevrier should be like versus Charme or, or Perrier? Who knows what uh, what Lavaux Saint-Jacques is really like in Geoffroy Chambertin versus Castier or other? It's so difficult. It's so complex. It takes such an incredible amount of time, energy, and money if you want to buy those wines that terroir becomes a bit empty, a bit meaningless. And is also used very often as an excuse for defects in wines, you know. The sulfitic reduction uh, becomes equivalent to minerality. Oh, but no, this wine is full of minerality. No, I'm sorry. It's reduced and, heavily <laughs> and has heavy doses of sulfites. It's different. But for some people, it will be the same. So it's complicated. It is very complicated. But at some point, when things have become too easy, and I'm sorry to say for a lot of people in Burgundy today, it be it's becoming too easy. It's always easier to say no to hundreds of people than uh, having to sell your wines on the market on Sundays to people who don't pay attention. And uh, 
even though the quality is great, you will struggle. That's how Orselmcello started. So when things is when things are becoming too easy, you tend to to take less risks. Also, you know, you tend to to follow the trend and to and to try to please uh, people who who are always flattering, who are always uh, telling you that you're you're the greatest. So there's a lot of ego also in this. Huh? Let's let's be honest. I always have more admiration for someone like this young girl in the Puisay region, starting her own operation, planting everything by herself. She's all alone. She's struggling, and she makes wonderful wines. They may they will never have the same level of reputation as some fancy appellation. But who cares? People will meet her, who will taste her wines, who will have a real emotion. We'll remember that, and that is more important. Two other points you've made on this topic that are related to it is, one, this is global for white wine in France. It's not just white burgundy, although we've talked a lot about white yes. burgundy, but also applies to Loire, or applies to whites from the south of France, or applies to Champagne even, you know, looking for more attention, looking for a higher acidity, looking for less RS. And then the other is that I think what you've implied is that people who are more like Venice wine lovers, like people who like the taste of wine, aging wine, wine as wine, not just wine as a refreshment, are moving more to red for that, actually, than white, because of this happening with white. Are those two points that are true? Yes, in a way, but you can also, I mean, it's not one or the other, it can be both. You can, you know... As a wine lover, as a wine drinker, I can have a perfectly refreshing glass of young, energetic Sancerre for lunch. But for dinner, if I'm cooking some fish and want something more complex, I will go grab some uh, 15 or 20-year-old Chablis from my cellar. You can like both. You can enjoy both. It's not one or the other. It should be both. It should be. That's, that's the difference. People should know how to enjoy the pleasures of different wines at different moments for, for different purposes. Today, again, I feel that a lot of consumers, a lot of wine lovers tend to lose this open-mindedness which should allow them to always find something new, something exciting, without never losing the memory of your first love, what you have loved first, you know? A lot of Riesling lovers, for instance, you know? When you reach the point where Riesling becomes something marvelous and beautiful, and you think it can be the greatest grapes in the world because of the purity, the, the, the complexity, the diversity of style. I'm, I'm part of those people. But when you start tasting wine, you obviously much more impressed by some Condrieu, some Viognier, some uh, you know other grapes, much more aromatic, much more easier to understand than than Riesling. You mean beginners who are getting yes, into wine, right? Yes. When you when you evolve in the wine world, when you build little by little your your understanding and your and your taste, one should all of course always look for something new, but also. Never forget what was your first love, and you should not lose this sense of, of, 
origin that was your first love i think it's it's very important because it 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 allows you to put things in perspective after the break we'll hear about another color of wine red how do you see red burgundy today compared to say 10 20 30 years ago we'll be back after a short message i've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to see for yourself what you could be drinking. But in that context, you do cover the Cote de Nuit for La Revue de Vin de France, so how do you see red burgundy today? compared to, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago? I think the reds have never been better than today. The climate has helped. When we speak about about the climate change, of course, everyone is worried and should be worried. But but so far, until today, in 2022, not to mention the problems of yields and quantities, but talking about quality, I think global warming has helped a lot. We have never been able to produce such good wines as today, thanks to global warming. Just remember 20, 30 years ago in Bordeaux, years like 84, 87, 93, uh, and all the decades of the 70s, the grapes were not ripe. It was cold, rainy, very difficult to produce good grapes. Burgundy, the last real bad vintage, also not bad, but below average vintage, was probably 94. Since that, of course, every year they have been able to produce very good to great wines. So global warming is out, improving the quality of the grapes. And there's no question about that, especially for the reds. Because I think it's easier today for wine producer in a given region, let's, let's speak about Burgundy, it's easier to produce balanced wines in a warm vintage with red grapes. When it comes to white, you all, they, everyone is so obsessed with acidity that you prefer to harvest when it's not ripe, but at least you will have the acidity. So the whole crowd will be pleased. 99% of the people will enjoy it because it will be refreshing, blah, blah, blah. Versus red, it's easier. Red, you make good wines. You can achieve the phenolic ripeness. You can use more and more whole clusters because they will be fully ripe. And thus, you will produce good, great wines with Pinot Noir, more balanced than ever, more delicious young than ever, and wines which will age perfectly. I have no no worries about that. So what used to happen maybe once or twice per decade, talking vintages like 59 or 47 in Burgundy or in Bordeaux, today it happens for five years in a row. Look at 2018, 2019, 2020, three amazing vintages, which will remain among the greatest. So in terms of quality, things have never been better for Burgundy. 
it's it's true. I, I've never tested so many delicious and incredible wines as in 19. 2020 is a bit bit more complicated because it's more heterogeneous. Broadly speaking, I would think that 2019 is a greater vintage because even the producer who usually do not work so hard or do not perform so well, I've succeeded and I've met really good wines, you know? 2020 was more complicated in terms of dates of picking. Some people uh, waited a bit too much. And so today, Burgundy has never made greatest wines than today. Yeah, I can say that, yeah. I've never done a Burgundy harvest, but it, it seems, at least anecdotally or from what I can taste, that there seems to be less chapitalization of red wines in Burgundy today, perhaps because of what you're speaking about. There is, yes, it's true, because when the grapes uh, reach such high level of ripeness and sugar content, such as in uh, 2019 and 2020, why, why would you chapitalize? And again, I know some very, very good producers, and which who make wines I really love, who have chapitalized in vintages like 19 or 20 because they think it's a little tool that they still like to use and they don't want to lose this opportunity. So, of course, they will not add uh, one gram of sugar, but they, they, they're lowering the, the level. But still, they want to do it. And everyone in 21 will say, yes, we have chapterized again because we felt it was needed. And not everyone will like uh, a 12% alcohol, Jeuvray Chambatin. No, you may expect a little bit more. It's a question of taste, it's a question of balance. I personally think that chapterizing can be useful if needed. In some cases, it's not needed. But... I think one should not go too far in this idea of non-interventionist winemaking can be marvelous, can be great when everything is set, when, when, when nature is perfect. When... But Burgundy is tricky. Burgundy can be complicated. You know, you can have problems with the fermentation. You can have problems with the malolactic. Your cellar is not cold enough, blah, blah. It can be complicated to perform the right winemaking. And what I hear and what I witness also from a lot of wine producers recently is that in vintages like 18, 19, and even 20, sometimes they're having more and more of a hard time achieving the right winemaking process, starting the fermentation when they would like to. So a little intervention, a little chaptalization sometimes, a little adding this or that will help in a... In a it becomes more and more complicated. Wine producers such as Ganva in the Jura or others have uh, said this. I, I, I don't know to vinify anymore. The way we used to work 10 years ago, okay, it was easy. Every year we could do a little bit, little bit the same. With global warming, the grapes are, are reaching sometimes such high content of polyphenol, such high level of ripeness. They they cannot work in the same way they used to. If some wine producers, unfortunately, have gone so far as to commit suicide, it's also because of these problems. They, they were witnessing a whole harvest going into vinegar. They didn't know 
how to do it. Even experienced and skilled wine producers like Dominique Belloir, they, they had no idea how to do it. I didn't realize that that was a factor. About that the was a factor, time. among many other factors, of course. But, but as a wine producer today, you can lose a little bit the understanding of what should be done because these raw materials that you get with the new patterns of the weather and of the climate is not what they have learned to, you know, when they started doing wine. It's not easy. Sometimes in Burgundy cellars, not that often, but sometimes I've wondered in vintages like 18 and hot, sunny vintages, whether uh, there was a little acidification going on in red. I've wondered that a few times. Yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad idea. That's a very bad idea. I'm completely against that. And I think it's a big mistake. Everyone who would today test wines from 2003, which have been acidified, it's plain to see that the wines are, they lack balance. They, they have gone in a wrong direction. So one should not do that for sure. Again, if the grapes are ripe, but not too ripe, uh, if you pick the right moment, okay, you may lack a little sense of acidity in the, but again, if you have a good terroir, not everyone has a good terroir, but if, if you have a good terroir and if you know how to uh, vinify and if you, if you have enough self-confidence also, be patient. Time will always make them come back and uh, very often there's a, a new vintage, tests super well at the beginning and then it will close down and take sometimes many years to come around and to, and to blossom and to open again. Difficult warm vintages, which may seem to lack natural acidity, for me, is bad winemaking practices in the vineyards also. You can, by adjusting the, the many little things, uh, choosing the right uh, trellising way, uh, stop trimming the, the leaves, uh, you can add some natural acidity. And this is something you see with people who are organic and working with biodynamics. So the good answer to a Burgundian producer saying, oh, but I have to acidify because the, there's too much alcohol, it's not going to be balanced, and I don't feel acidity, say, okay, but rather than doing some correction in, your, in the winemaking process, try to think what you can improve in your vineyard because this is where you will get the good balance in your grapes, I think. Something else you already referred to is whole cluster use and more use of stems. And that seems to be definitely a trend or something that's happened in the last, say, 10 years in red burgundy. And sometimes I wonder if that's an attempt to add freshness or somehow related to ripeness. Maybe the stems themselves are riper, that sort of thing. It is. It is definitely. Uh, you will meet a lot of producers saying today, okay, yes, I have added, I've started adding a little percentage, and I'm increasing this percentage of whole clusters because I feel that my wines have more freshness. So obviously, whole clusters can be a tool, but one should remember that some producers have always used whole clusters for sometimes 40, 50 years, like Domaine du Jacques or others. And so that cannot be a tool today to if you want more freshness. It's, it's a question of style. Honestly, I have no preconceived ideas. I love some wines made with 100% whole clusters. 
And I love some wines which can come from completely distant grapes. So I can like both. But uh, I see more and more old clusters being used, also because there's better ripening conditions. But not always. It's not because you have a super warm and sunny year with a lot of drought and, you know, that the, the stems will will reach the perfect ripening. The, the perfect ripening for the stems, for me, would take a slow, long maturation process with, I would say, not a late harvest, but something more September, uh, you know, harvesting end of September with cool north wind, bringing lower temperature at night. So, so this kind of pattern, this, I think, is when you will get the perfect ripeness for the old clusters. But I also witnessed some producers, like Cécile Tremblay, for instance, who's making quite impressive wines, as we know. She told me that in 2020 and 19, she has used very few, if none, old clusters, because she... she prefers, she has seen that inner wine, inner style anyway, the use of all clusters uh, gives better results in cooler vintages, like uh, 2017. She has used a lot of all clusters in 17, and much less in 18, 19, 20. And it's also, it also depends on, of, on the quality of the raw material of the, of the vine, because uh, with some clones, you will never be able to get the good ripeness for all clusters. So you have to pay attention to a lot of details. And it's sometimes too simplistic to say, okay, you have people doing all clusters and people who don't. I think one has to find a good balance. One has to find the style that you're looking for. Most of the producers I know, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing in Burgundy today, they say, okay, well, yeah, okay, this year we did 30% all clusters on average. This year, 17%. But very few will do today, and, and I see it as a trend, as an evolution, very few producers will say, okay, now we, every year we do 100% all clusters or we just stem 100%. You have to adjust. You have to find some variation depending on what nature gives you. Something else I hear in Burgundy is that the grape material is more extractable today, that it more easily gives extraction than it used to when people were doing more punch downs. And that may be true or it may not be true, but certain people seem to be reacting off that idea and changing up their style in some way or another. Even people that I think are associated with a fair amount of extraction seem to be dialing it back how much extraction they want to do, at least in certain crews. Completely. No, that's what we can witness with many, when you test at many estates, uh, People like Dugapi or uh, Arnaud Mortet, or they, they extract less and less. There's two, two ways of explaining that. It's also a fashionable trend to, to produce less extracted, more infused red wines. Huh? Again, in Burgundy, nobody does 100% new oak with heavy punching down, punching over. And you don't want to extract too much. You want, you want to, Respect also the character of the Pinot Noir, and to and if you want to to have the this sense of terroir, you you have to be light-handed for sure. And it's true also that in warm vintages such as eighteen, nineteen, you have so much ripeness and tannins, and the grapes are, are quite thick and ripe. If you extract too much, those wines will become monsters. 
They will become undrinkable. They will become too big, too dark, too, you know? Why do we still mention 47 or 59? It's because they had exceptional weather patterns. They were able to, to harvest super ripe grapes. And they did not have this light hand. They were doing the way they were vinifying 58, which was uh, cool and uh, acidic. And, and they needed to extract some color, some, some raw materials. So when you do this kind of thing in a, in a super ripe vintage, you produce wines that probably will be undrinkable for uh, one or two generations and will come around after 50 years. Some some legendary wines like uh, some fifty nine today. That's what happened. They, some producers still have them in the cellar because the wines were not good to drink for 40, 50 years. You know, so those legendary vintages uh, come from that. And I think it's it's wise to adjust. And in vintages like eighteen or nineteen or twenty twenty, to try to make some infusion, to try to not to extract too much because you already have so much color, so much intensity, so much depth of flavor. Why would you add tannins and make and, and create such a strong and drinkable beast? You know, it makes sense. I think that they're, they're doing it in the right way. Something that took me a while to fully grasp in terms of visiting Burgundy and tasting the wines was the duality or the, the split between people who like a delayed mallow in red and people who like a quick mallow. On one side, delayed mallow would be like Rumier, and on the quicker side would be like Rousseau. Both good wines. Yeah. But there's a fundamental difference there in the texture of the wine. Obviously, there's multi-factors here that have to do with yields and vineyards and terroir differences and handling in all kinds of different ways. But it does seem like a fundamental difference if you do it one way or another. This, this one technique about how and when you time mallow, if you're going to just let it happen or whether you're going to like draw it out, seems to really have a, a mark in the final wine. It definitely has an impact on the final wine. I tend to favor the ones who let it happen and not try to, to force it, to push it too hard, because obviously you will have to warm up the cellar and... Uh, it's not always accurate, you know. When when do you start? When do you stop? Changes of temperatures is is not. It's manipulated, you know. It you 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 create something um, that that doesn't suit the wine. But let's not forget the fact that also the the start of the mallows depend on the temperature of the cellar, and even in Burgundy you can have some very deep buried cellar where mallows will never start before next spring. And you will have warmer cellars where mallow always starts right after the alcoholic fermentation and uh, sometimes November, December, and it starts and it lasts for a week or two and then it's gone. So people may say, yes, I prefer this, I prefer that, but they have to do with what, what they have in their state, with the cellar they have. And I see... I see a lot of producers also trying to buy new cellars or trying to dig, to, trying to ex extend their buildings in order to have cooler cellars. Because today, cooler cellars, of course, uh, is better for, for the élevage, but also much better for delayed mallows. As far as I'm concerned, I, 
I always tend to find that I wouldn't say the wines are better, but I think they are better built for aging when the mellows is long and takes time. But it shouldn't be too long either. I remember when I was testing the 2020 in Burgundy in November, some producers had still mellow going on and sometimes not even started almost a year after the harvest. So what I'm witnessing today in Burgundy with the last three, four vintages is an incredible array of different situations from one cellar to another. Different situations in terms of dates of picking, but also what's going on in the cellar. Is the fermentation starting by itself easily? How will the mallow react? So it, it becomes more and more unpredictable and, and complicated. That's the feeling I have. I think that's a really astute comment. The more I visited Burgundy, the more I've realized how complex this is with all of these different permutations of this and, and quite a few good producers. Like there's a lot of regions you would go to that are famous regions, but there's like 10 or 20 or 30 max good producers. Yes. But you go to Burgundy there's a lot of great That's producers. A lot. That's a lot. You go to 30 good producers and you still feel like you missed quite a few, yeah. you know, when you leave. I think that's really true. And I think that the joker in the pack here is climate change, where people are really reassessing. There's some generational change going on here too. But what are things that you think are really fundamentals right now from saying, okay, this is one way and this is another in red burgundy? Well, what I'm witnessing, what, Again, I'm, I'm not, I would say I'm, I'm fully convinced, but, but I'm convinced until something else happened that proves the, the issue will be much more complicated than I thought. But for instance, stopping trimming the vines is, in my opinion, something that will help keeping some freshness. So you're saying like not hedging as much, like allowing yes. higher canopy. And and changing the, the, the trellising system also. The going from, in, in Burgundy, some people are doing that, huh? going from, from Guyou or Cordon to Echalor, like in Cotrotti. Like, so single stake, basically. Yes, that's so like what, Bizo, yes, for example. That's what uh, Trappé in Jevoy has done. That's what Arnoux Lachaud has been doing in the last few years. They have completely uh, changed all their little parcels, and uh, and you can see more and more of them. Huh? Every year you go to Burgundy, you see one or two new producers starting to work this way. Of course, you have more uh, more leaves, usually smaller grapes, less quantity, so it, not everyone can afford to do that, in the, considering the, the, the very small... Uh, Last vintages, but you get an incredible, perfect ripeness with high acidity and a delicacy of tannins. You get a sense of harmony. Those wines, they feel they're, I don't know, they're, they're, they're serene, they're zen-like, you know? And when you test that, it, 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 it's, really, it's, it, it's really impressive to witness. And you can make a link with this new way of working in the vineyard. That, for me, is a super, it's, it's probably 
one of the most interesting evolutions I've seen recently in Burgundy in terms of how work done in the vineyard can, can really affect the taste and the, and the overall balance of the wine. And I know you're a big fan of what Arnaud Lachaud is doing in recent vintages, and you're a fan of those wines. And one of the things that he's doing in the vineyard is exactly what you're talking yes. about, moving towards that. And Among many other things, because right. he, he also has the sheep uh, in the vineyard, I mean, many, many little things. And he and some others who are looking at higher trellising often reference Loire in that conversation. Yes, of course. I should have mentioned her. She was the, she was the first. And if you get the chance to test some of our wines, you, yes, you, it's plain to see. There is, there is some kind of magic. But magic in a great, great wine comes from an infinity of little details. So... Stopping the trimming of the vines is one of those little details, among many others. But that's something, because of the climate change, that is something that can have a real impact. And I'm, I don't want to foresee what's going to happen, but I think in the years to come, we will see more and more producers working this way. What do you think about the use of lees in red burgundy? Very important, extremely important. Even in even in vintages where you can think there's too much lees and you want to get rid of it and you you want something lighter, no, the the edging on the lees is 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 paramount. It's it's it also helps building a wine for the future. It will allow him to to nourish and to to get all the components needed for the for the complexity and the edging. There's also a trend today that tends to be less and less reduction in the wines. Maybe also because the grapes are riper than they used to be. So it explains, you know, the, the lower level of uh, reductive character that usually came from the lees also. So in the past, the lees were, were not so welcome sometimes. Today, the lees, they're nourishing the wines they they're getting everything that the wine needs and there is no problem of heavy reduction than there used to be so so the leaves are more welcome than ever some other topics that seem worth talking about in terms of red burgundy would be pumping it seems like some people are really making efforts to either pump more gently or not to pump grapes for example or to pump juice and being equipped by gravity also. Oh, when you renovate your cellar very often, you, you're looking for that. Yes, it does, it does have an, an important effect on the wines. What I'm witnessing also more and more is, is producers saying, oh, I, I, would love to, I would love to bottle barrel by barrel now, more and more, you know, because this is probably the right moment where you can lose most. When you don't perform, when you don't bottle yourself, also when you have to to wait for the guy to come with his machine, you know, if you bottle barrel by barrel, of course you will, you can have bottle variation, but what will get in the bottle is pristine, will not suffer from interferences from the not so clean machine or uh, something that can pollute the setup, whatever. It, it, 
Of course, pumping is important, but also pumping in terms of blending in a vat before bottling. I think they're becoming more and more aware of the importance of taking the greatest care possible of the quality of the juice right before bottling. I cannot think of many really good producers damaging the quality of the of the wine by doing too much pumping or at least not in Burgundy today. One of the things I've really realized in my own progression is that traveling to Burgundy and tasting there fairly regularly has made me a better taster, probably more than any other region. Have there been revelations for you along the way in terms of tasting wine in cellars? I, I agree with you. I would say that tasting a lot of Burgundies makes you a better tester because you have to pay attention to such extremely subtle variations between terroir, between styles. You can sometimes you you test the oak. If even if the oak is not noticeable, but you you learn what a wine aged in a barrel from Francois Frère will taste like compared to a barrel from Taronceau or from another copper. You learn all, all these very subtle differences because Pinot Noir has this level of transparency that almost no other red grapes, in my opinion, has in the world. So if you test Burgundy often, if you test often in Burgundy, and if you visit also quite a large array of different producers, you will improve your understanding and, and, you, and your taste will become more subtle, more, more, more demanding also. Going forward, we've said now that climate change has affected Burgundy up to this point, And of course, we don't know what's going to happen with climate change going forward. And neither do the vine growers, honestly. But what do you suppose will happen in the next 10 or 20 years when it comes to making wine in Burgundy? <laughs> More unpredictability, definitely. What I see as a trend is that wine producers must be prepared to to have extremely small yields because frost can happen again, extreme drought can happen again. I hope fires will not happen, but who knows? New diseases may spread, you know. Uh, a few years ago, we had the Suzuki fly, uh, which has done a lot of damages just right before harvest. Well, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? You know, COVID would have been unexpected for everyone a few years ago. So everything can happen, unfortunately. We have to be ready for the most unpredictable events. So I think Burgundy has a unique chance today. They have worldwide demand. They can sell to who they want at almost the price they want. It may not last. So they should, if I had to give one advice to some producers, and a lot of them have already understood that, but they have to keep some wines in the cellar. They have to increase the inventory, even though it costs money every year, because in France every year you pay taxes on the amount of money you have in your cellar. But they have to increase that because it's going to happen again. In a given vintage, they may they may have almost nothing to sell. So 
if they keep wines and try to 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 smooth everything and to always have a little wines to sell, but start edging also a few wines because again, uh, as we mentioned, some wines producer are upset that their wines are drank way too young, way too early in restaurants or in foreign markets. If you want to do justice to your wines and to your terroir and to enable people to enjoy those wines in the best way, they can afford to store and to release later and save some wines. That's good for the treasury, for the, you know, all year round sales, but also what Fred Meunier was doing for his Musini. I would love to see Eric Rousseau doing the same for the Chambertin. I would love to see someone else doing the same for some Grand Cru because there's no point in drinking those great, marvelous wines way too young. So this is one of the trends I would see becoming more and more important in the years to come. Another area that makes a lot of Pinot Noir, in addition to Burgundy, that you also cover for La Revue de Vin de France is Alsace. And one of the things that you've really highlighted to me in the past is there's a lot of good value Pinot Noir in Alsace. Extremely good value. The most expensive Pinot Noir in Alsace must be the ones from Valentin Zuslan and from Albermann. So something like 70 euro, 80 euro a bottle of the top, top Pinot Noir from Alsace. For that sum of money, sometimes you can hardly purchase a village in Burgundy. So, yes, Alsace has a strong, strong uh, future for Pinot Noir. But it was the case in the past. Huh? During the Middle Age, Alsace was extremely well known for the quality of its red wines. It's happening today, thanks to global warming again. And thanks to a younger generation of producers who also have learned how to cope with Pinot Noir, how to keep freshness, how to express more terroir in the wines. Because Pinot Noir, uh, 20 years ago in Alsace, they were all using old casks, sometimes a bit dusty, not so clean. You used to have a lot of dryness in the tannins, which were not perfectly right. I mean, the, the style has changed a lot, but many people don't know about it. Because when you think Pinot Noir, of course, Burgundy draws all the attention and you never go to Alsace. I think the shape of the bottle can 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 be a problem for some people. Also, you know, they like they like the burgundy or Bordeaux shape, but the but Alsace has a, such a strong image for white wine that it will take some time, unfortunately, before the the red wines will get a great recognition. But for those who really want to have great Pinot Noir and spending a reasonable amount of money, my advice would be try some of the great producers from Alsace. Some of them use all clusters also now, and they're fresh, they're lively, they're juicy, they're delicious. One should discover them. Are there stylistic groupings or regional groupings of Pinot Noir in Alsace? Like, for example, are there different terroir kind of groupings of different Pinot Noir? No, what you can see, I would say, is the some stylistic trends. You have a group of producers who are very much influenced by Burgundy. They're trying to recreate the style or getting access to some barrels that they purchase from 
great producers from Burgundy in order to, not to imitate, but to find the inspiration. Sometimes it works perfectly. But you also have producers trying to respect a more traditional approach. And sometimes it can be super interesting. I would say Jean-Michel Dess, for instance, is super well known for his uh, complotation, uh, his wine made from a blend of different grapes on different terroirs. But his red wines, I think, are very good, but they're always a bit more close, a bit more austere. They, they need time. Whereas most Pinot Noir from Alsace today, you can open the bottle and drink it. They're, they're delicious. They will age, but they're super good young. And when you pay 15, 20 euros for a bottle, it's not necessarily something you want to keep in your cellar. It's also wines that you can drink, not on an everyday basis, but quite often. So I also see producers trying to, to rejuvenate the traditional style of Alsace. Wines with long aging sometimes, you know, 15, 18, 20 months, aged in casks. Sometimes wines, yes, a bit more austere, less, less fruity, less exuberant than the, the Burgundy style. And you also have quite a few producers in a very natural style, making wines that can be great, but can also be not so good. It's a hit or miss. It really depends because when you do absolutely no sulfites, and uh, it depends how it's performed and kept. But people like uh, Frick makes absolutely wonderful uh, Pinot Noir in Alsace. I love the wines also from uh, Laurent Barthes, Ebinger, among the new generation of producers. So there's there's a new trend also of Pinot Noir made in a completely. Uh, non-interventionist and almost no sulfite style that can be absolutely gorgeous, yes. In your opinion, if I understand correctly, you think Alsace is a real region to look at within France if you want to spend 20 euros or less? Absolutely. On, on white, of course. But the new revelation is, is red because the last three vintages, 18, 19, and 2020, Everyone would agree they have never made better red wines. Never. Besides global warming and some new consciousness amongst a different generation and some good farming, are there other particular keys to that, whether it be vine material or planting in the right place or type of pruning? or Is there something that changed in the region that has allowed them to achieve better I don't better think so much has changed in the region in terms of the way of working. It's more the way Alsatian people look at the Pinot Noir. For many years, Pinot Noir, it's always been there. It used to be vinified in, in, as a kind of rosé. You know, they used to do a very light style of red wine that was meant to be drunk during summer and, and usually not grown on the best terroir again because some white grapes were much more popular in, the, in those days. It takes a new generation, younger guys, who are today in their 20s or 30s, sometimes 40s, who have traveled a lot, who have witnessed traveling in Asia or in America or anywhere in the world, the power of the Pinot Noir, the demand, the interest for Pinot Noir wines. Uh, and they figure out, okay, but us, we can do it too. We have Pinot Noir. And we have Pinot Noir. It's been there for centuries. We should find a, a, a way to reinterpret, to 
to make it more popular and uh, and to make much better wines. And I think that's why today Alsace is performing super well. Not not only because of global warming and better grape qualities, but also because a lot of these young producers have opened their eyes and 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 realized that they they are everything it took to to make it themselves. As a financial model, one of the things you did that was quite smart, I think, was you write and review French wines for mostly a French audience. Yes. But then you also import Italian wines into France that you don't write or review. You separate the two businesses. So you're an importer who brings in Italian wines to France, and then you're a reviewer of French wines in France. And I, I forbid myself to write on foreign wines. And I forbid myself to sell French wines to restaurants and wine stores. So I have organized my schizophrenic in a way. You know, I, I have two two different jobs. But I find it's quite complementary in a way. Because when you get to know French wines really well, when I'm looking for something new in Italy, I will go for what I feel is super authentic and as a true Italian character. I want as a buyer, as an importer, I want to feel that what the wine producers, whatever story they have, is related to what I see in the vineyard, in the cellar, and to what I test. Then it makes sense. If something goes wrong, I'm not convinced. And I also want to be able to sell wines that I would drink myself. Honesty is important, you know? You have to be convinced. You're somewhat of a small company. I mean, it's basically oh, it's super small. Well, you, right? We're two. No, no, we're two. I have, a, I have an Italian guy working with me. He was a great, great guy. Because selling to some Italian people in France, Italian people who have, you know, an Italian restaurant, if I'm not Italian, I'm not trustworthy. Even though I speak Italian. But you bring in wines to France from Italy, from most of the regions of Italy. Almost every region, yes. We're trying because, because they're all so different. And in, in, in each region, you can find uh, wonderful people you get along with and you love their wines and the prices are right and the market is responding and your clients love it. And, uh, and yeah, so I started like, now it's like 17, 18 years and uh, I still work with some of the producers I, I started with. And it's, it's, it's really rewarding to know that you, you have made choices that you still believe in, you know, wines you still believe in. And I've also witnessed a, a growing demand in France for foreign wines, and especially Italian wines. And so today, my, most of my customers are not Italian restaurants. They are good restaurants, sometimes uh, Michelin-style restaurants, two, three-star restaurants. And also a lot of wine shops, a lot of wine bars who are looking for new tastes, new styles, new, new expressions of wines. Jean-Emmanuel Simon sees marvelous opportunities to explore the diversity of European wines as a, both a writer and a wine importer in France. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, David. Jean-Emmanuel Simon of La Revue de Vin de France and Anotropy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Editing and sound design by Alessandro Santoro. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. 
Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the incredibly important donations that help keep this show going. You can donate from anywhere via PayPal on our website, alldrinktothatpod.com. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. As I was driving with my parents as a child going to, to Chamonix, sometimes we used to stop in Jura because that was on the way. We had to cross Switzerland to go to Chamonix. The highway that has been built later didn't exist, so it was easier to go through Arbois, to make a stop in Arbois for lunch or, and then keep driving. And once or twice, my father stopped, uh, said, okay, let's buy some wine, just out of curiosity again. And we stopped at Jack Pifnay. So I was pretty lucky also. And I think that's one of the first good wine I remember drinking also with my parents was a bottle of Arbois, Trousseau and, uh, and Pulsar mostly. My father liked the reds. Um, so that was interesting because Jura was already had a very distinctive taste. Uh, it was unlike any other reds. Huh? The, the Pulsar and Trousseau are different. That do not taste like anything else in France. So, so for me, it was, I had this curiosity. And then I started also looking at vineyards in Switzerland from Valais, because when you're in Chamonix, you just climb uh, top of the mountain and just on the other side, you have Switzerland. So it's pretty easy to go. And if you cross the Tunnel du Mont Blanc, you're in Italy. So it, it was pretty easy to visit vineyards around, around this area. And I started tasting wines from Switzerland, wines from Italy. And very quickly, it was pretty clear to me that this, this was Europe, you know. When you're in the Alps, you're in the, in the center of Europe, you have other countries around. And for me, there is no French wine and the rest. There is Euro European wines and the rest. That make more sense to me. That is more logical because... I feel a strong cultural, historical background in vineyards from Piemonte, from Switzerland, from Burgundy. It's the same. It's the same story. It's the same, the same way of seeing agriculture and growing grapes and trying to, to, to make good wines.